Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June 29th, 2022. It's been quite a month. I think many, many of us would be happy that June is about to end, although one wonders what uh, July 2020 will bring. If it's like June 2022, it's going to be quite a month. Uh, we're living now uh, dominated by all the headlines of the January 6th committee. But a few days ago, we were dominated by the decision by the Supreme Court to get beyond or to undo Roe versus Wade. I think many of us are still trying to make sense of this. Um, and the New York Times headline about Americans celebrating and mourning the abortion decision is, I think, extremely accurate. America is a very divided country, and nothing divides Americans more than abortion. Um, what's interesting is it's all too easy to get divided on philosophical grounds in terms of women's rights and the right to life. But one of the things that doesn't always get discussed is the role of technology here. Lots of comments and op-eds about us, go, us, the American society, going back in time. But of course, we live in an age of increasingly sophisticated technology. We live in an age, for example, where there's such a thing as an abortion pill. So we can't really go back, at least according to technology. So the issue of tech and feminism and, fe and female rights are very much bound up with one another. I'm thrilled today that we have uh, one of America's leading writers and thinkers, both on technology and uh, the rights and roles of women historically, Deborah Spar. Uh, she's from Harvard Business School. And her last book, um, which, uh, which uh, I found extremely interesting, was Work, Mate, Marry, Love, How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. I want to get to that book. But first of all, I want to get Deborah's take on uh, the events of the last couple of weeks in, in terms of Roe versus Wade and the Supreme Court. Uh, Deborah's joining us from Cape Cod, a nice hot Cape Cod. Uh, Deborah, given you wear these different hats, which don't exist in parallel, they're all sort of bound up together. I don't know if you can wear both hats simultaneously, whether that will make you look odd. Um, but what do you make in historic and technological and political terms of this decision? Well, I think in uh, so many ways, this is both a, a, a shocking and, and a really um, largely unprecedented decision. Uh, history doesn't always move in nice, neat, linear pathways. We know that. Um, but it is rare to have a decision, a moment in time where it really feels like like rights um, that had been so well secured that that people took them for granted um, are are pulled away sort of literally overnight. Uh, so this is a big moment. Uh, it's one that it relates to with technologies in, in way we can talk about. But I, I think it's as you said, that you know, I would take my my uh, technology hat off for a moment and say, you know, purely in terms of reproductive rights, in terms of family development, in terms of what many people now see as fundamental freedoms, um, the world has gone backwards uh, a few steps. Well, if we go back 16 years, Deborah, you, you came out with the book, The Baby Business, How Money, Science and Politics Drives the Commerce of Conception. 
you've done a lot of thinking about this. Also, the baby business, I guess, in terms of adoption. How is this decision going to change the baby business? So I'm really glad you asked that question because this is one of, in fact, the biggest implications of the reversal of Roe v. Wade and one that at least thus far uh, in the sort of initial flurry has gotten the least uh, a bit of attention in, in my view. Because all of the base and the baby business, a term I and others use to refer to all the ways of acquiring children that go beyond mother nature. So there is an entire market and we can argue about that later, but there's a market for procuring children, acquiring children, whether it's sperm donation, egg donation, IVF, hormones, all of those ways are in their very nature unnatural. They, they are ways of doing what mother nature for various reasons won't do. And almost all of them rest at their core on the creation of an embryo outside of a woman's body. Uh, sperm donation is, is the slight example, uh, sorry, exception to that. But if the Roe v. Wade decision or laws that are, are, are now set up under this new umbrella are going to define conception, I'm sorry, going, going to define life at the moment of conception, then you can't, you do IVF. IVF becomes illegal as well um, because the IVF is, cre is creating embryos that in nearly all cases may well be discarded or may well not survive. And uh, already we're seeing in the, these early days, IVF clinics across the clinic, I'm sorry, IVF clinics across the United States sort of thrown into a tailspin because suddenly their, their very work may be illegal. And yeah, in an odd way, um, your book was very well reviewed in the New York Times um, a couple of years ago about two books about how long you, how long it will be before we fall in love with the robot. The other a book reviewed with yours was um, a book by Jenny Kleeman called uh, Sex Robots and Vegan Meat. And I actually happened to interview Jenny earlier this week. She believes or she suggests that this might actually trigger new technologies that will enable the creation of life beyond IVF factories, beyond the way in which we conceive of life. So ironically, and this is often the case in history, a reactionary political decision might actually result in technological, cultural, and political advancement. Is that possible? It's possible. Um, I don't know that there's any easy ways to do it, um, although it doesn't necessarily have to be easy. But but there is a there is a core definitional issue. I mean, let's let's imagine if if uh, conception or if life was was defined as beginning at the egg then, you know, every time a woman menstruates, it, technically, uh, that's murder. We're not going to go that far. If life uh, begins with a sperm, then there's a whole bunch of things that suddenly become uh, unacceptable. So we'd have to find some pretty fundamental ways to create life that don't involve the creation of, of an embryo outside of a woman's body. So is it possible? Yes. Um, I don't know that there's there's technologies yet because you getting around the embryo is really tough. I'm sure there are some smart people both in Silicon Valley and where you are uh, in Cambridge, Mass, working on this. I mean, we never imagined that we would have vegan meat. So why not no. have life 
beyond the sperm, shall we say, to put well, it well. It's because it's less the technology. I mean, there's cloning technology, right? I mean, those, those are things that are that are quite advanced and 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 quite intriguing. Yet what we're talking about here, unlike the vegan meat issue, is it's what the law does with the technology. Right? So it's if, back to Clarence Thomas and... Um... No, exactly. I mean, if if what certain political, and, and I, I, I don't want to dismiss anyone's opinion. I, I think everyone has a right to their own opinion and therefore their own choices. But if we find ourselves with laws that essentially don't want children produced through anything other than, you know, heterosexual married sex, technology doesn't really give you a way around that. What technology can do, um, and I think that there's, or I'd imagine there's a lot of scrambling in this direction, is how do we make contraception better, right? How can we imagine sort of um, trying to control reproduction itself in, in, in and I'm, I'm for sure certain that those that kind of work is going to be going on. Um, so we're already seeing again, and you mentioned it at the start, uh, birth control pills, which replace a physical act of abortion with with something that is much harder to trace. So I think that, you know, from sort of the, the left perspective, that could be technology coming to the rescue. Thinking about new ways to uh, to conceive children that don't involve an embryo. That's tough to do legally um, given current technologies, but not impo nothing's impossible. We've, we've learned that. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you make the argument in Workmate, Marry, Love, that machines are, have always shaped our human destiny. And you suggest that of these four, Workmate, Marry, Love, the one that's perhaps in crisis in our digital age of Tinder is love. It, it, it's interesting that you make that argument. Margaret Atwood also made it. Margaret Atwood was on the show last year. She made a similar argument, but in a low-tech way in Handmaid's Tale. When you have a cult of fertility in her reactionary political world, which many people see as being prescient, then love also goes out the window. The defining thing, I think, in um, in The Handmaid's Tale was the absence of love. Uh, it's odd that both you and Atwood have come to similar conclusions from entirely different perspectives and analyses, isn't it? I, I think it's odd, but perhaps not entirely surprising, because when you when you look at this 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 world of of future relationships, I think there's a lot to be scared about, and and I think we both may have at these conclusions different pathways but but they're somewhat connected and and i don't want to be totally pessimistic here i do think love is alive and well and it exists not only in romantic forms it's the love between a parent and a child between two longtime friends so i don't, I don't think love is the immediate danger what i do is under increased stress sort of early age romantic relationships and on that the pandemic takes we saw three years ago and makes it you know a hundred worse um, it's becoming much more difficult for young people to find themselves in relationships particularly in the early years of their blooming sexuality when they can kind of experiment simultaneously with love and sex um, and what I argue in the book in which many people have pointed to is that love and sex are becoming very uh, increasingly disentangled, just as sex and babies are becoming disentangled. As I've said in the book and elsewhere, you know, for most of human history, or certainly sort of recent human history, 
we, we bought these things, speaking like an economist, as a bundle. You got love and sex and babies all together. And one of the things that technology has done, particularly but not exclusively reproductive technologies, is we, we've disentangled that bundle. So now you can have sex without babies and sex without love and love without sex. And, and so it's not entirely surprising that young people are increasingly having sex without love or sex without relationships. And, and I think it makes it harder for them to develop both a healthy sexuality and, and the kind of loving relationships um, that used to evolve in sort of smaller communities over longer periods of time. It's tough to find love on Tinder. It's not impossible. Uh, I was at a Tinder wedding last week and it was a lovely couple who are deeply in love, but it's harder. It takes more work than it did in the you know once upon a time days of even 50 years ago when you met the people who would become your partners in, if you will, more natural, slower moving situations like a church basement or a college English class. Or, or a music rehearsal. It's interesting, Deborah. Yeah. I wonder if this current, shall we call them the Tinder generation, are nostalgic for that time. Yesterday I had a young journalist, Emma uh, Brody, on the show, a 30, young 30 something journal, uh, journalist, writer, novelist. She has a new book out, um, a novel, a, a fictionalized story of the relationship between James Taylor and Joni Mitchell, the love affair between the two people. Do you think that this generation seems to be increasingly nostalgic for, and you and I have similar generation, uh, the baby, the, 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 the sort of the climax, if you like, of the baby boomer generation in the late 60s, early 70s. Is part of that nostalgia, do you think, putting love and sex back together? Because the Clarence Thomases of the world want to go back to a time when you had love but not sex. The postmodernists want to have sex but not love. Whereas perhaps James Taylor and Joni Mitchell, at least back in 1971, wanted them both. Yeah, and and they weren't the only ones. Um, and I, you know, I, the historian in me wants to pause just a little bit and say that the bundle of love and sex is itself relatively recent. That, that if you look at marriage throughout most of history, marriages were arranged. And for sure they were about right. sex and babies and property, but there was no love. Love was totally incidental. Uh, but I but think it wasn't even on the menu, love. No one no, even had a, no, a word for it. It wasn't a concept. Not even, I mean, even the love between a parent and a child was much harder historically because children died you know, at such a regular rate. So parents were going to be more reluctant to invest or, you know, would resist in loving a child because that child 50% of the time was going to die. But 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 going back to the kind of romantic bundle, I, you know, I, I come from that generation. I feel like, you know, I feel incredibly lucky, especially now that I, I was able to have, you know, love and sex and romance. Uh, and by the way, the novel uh, takes place on uh, on Cape Cod. So you can... You oh, good. It as you <laughs> walk on the beach. Commonality. But I do see, I mean, I have all of my students are in this generation and my own kids are in this, this generation that's coming of age. And, you know, it's always dangerous to generalize from anecdote, but, but I do see this nostalgia uh, for what in their minds now is, you know, old fashioned romance. And, and I think we, we see it from both men and women, but without getting too much into you know, it's harder for women without love to have sex without some kind of emotional. Not impossible, not unheard of, but but a little bit harder. And uh, one of the one of the columns I read regularly is the Modern Love column in the in the New York Times. 
And there was just a piece this weekend that I found incredibly poignant. It was a young woman, uh, you know, Ivy League college student, basically just telling, so she can't be more than 22, telling the story of all the men who've broken up with her. And, you know, so at the age of 22, she's had 15 breakups, all of which seem to have been premised on the fact that there never was a relationship to begin with. That's sad. You know, and she clearly was, was yearning for something she hadn't had, which was a relationship that, in, in a, that entailed some le- level of commitment, even if it was only commit, commitment for a couple of months. We can't blame everything on the internet or Tinder for that, uh, Deborah. You're a bit of a wonder woman yourself. You were, the pre- you were I think, the president of um, Barnard, you're a Harvard University professor. You're the author of Wonder Woman, so you are a wonder woman. I wonder if, in part, this is a consequence of women women's rights. Uh, we did a show with Kate Mangino recently, earlier this week, Equal Partners Improving Gender Equality at Home, suggesting that the key to happy marriages and societies are men sharing the domestic duties. How would you explain the history of feminism in terms of this crisis, if you like, of love in the 2020s? So this is complicated. Um, and it's I, always complicated, it's always Deborah. Complicated. That's why you're on the show. <laughs> well, I'll try. I think one of the things that, that I find helpful to remember um, is how quickly history is moving right now. Certainly our technologies are evolving at a faster pace than ever before. You know, the whole idea that you can create babies in Petri dishes was fantastical 50 years ago. But so too was feminism. You know, that what people will refer to as second wave feminism, the sort of, the, you know, the feminism that really blossomed in the late 60s and early 70s, the feminism that coincided with, with Roe v. Wade and with the easy access to the pill. That's only 50 years old. But it did change things. And, and I think, and this ties back to the technology, I think the combination of feminist advocacy with the technology of good, reliable contraception did give women massive options, particularly options to stay in the workforce in, in very much more expansive ways. And it, it, it changed the underlying family structure. The, the traditional, what I call the leave it to beaver family of the 1950s, to use the very sort of stereotypical term, that was a relationship where the, you know, the husband went to work, he was the wage earner, the wife stayed home, she was the homemaker. Um, that situation was miserable for many women. It was probably miserable for many men, um, but it worked. Again, to speak as an economist, in terms of the division of labor, that worked. If one person earns the money, the other person takes care of the home, they share the proceeds, the kids inherit everything, it, it worked. And I think what, what we all forgot in kind of our enthusiasm to embrace this new, brave new world of choices was that there were going to be costs along with the benefits. And, and, and as I say in, in the Wonder Women book, once women entered, and, and another caveat, we're talking largely here about privileged upper middle class and, and upper class women, women who did have the opportunity to, you know, to become Wonder Women in a sort of economic sense. Once those women started working 40 and 60 and 80 hours a week, and presuming that they had male partners who also continued to work 40 and 60 and 80 hour weeks, there was just no one to do the housework that also entailed 40 or 60 hours a week. And so there was a basic problem of the math, even before you get to the division of labor within the household. 
there was just work that had to be done in other ways. And we didn't really figure out how to do that. And we still haven't. What's the relationship, um, Deborah? do you think, between taking sexual risks and growing up, becoming an adult? That a feminist polemicist, Catherine Angel, on the show. She's written a book, Daddy Issues, a kind of polemic against Father's Day. We did the show near Father's Day a couple of weeks ago, where she says that women have to take or girls need to take sexual risks if they're going to grow up to become women, if they're to become adults. Um, So your image of this woman who's had lots of sexual partners but hasn't found love, at least they've grown up by sexual experimentation. I assume the same is true of men. Is there a relationship between becoming an adult and experimenting sexually? Are we missing something when we don't have love? Uh, I, I, I haven't read her work, so, so I'm just speculating here, but I'm not sure risk is always a good thing. I'd be curious to know what kind of risks, you know, the risks, risk of sexually transmitted disease is probably not a risk that is enriching in, in any meaningful way. I'm not sure the risk of becoming pregnant is, is a risk that needs to be enjoyed uh, by the majority of people. Um, I, I think there may be many pleasures in sexual experimentation. There's, I think, certainly uh, many pleasures in meeting different people and trying on different personalities. Uh, but I'm not sure risk for the sake of risk is something I would necessarily be excited about. Again, with, with, with the caveat that I haven't read specifically what terms, of, what kinds of risks she's referring to. Deborah, cheer us up. You said you're an optimist. Um, and in your your new book, uh, Work, Mate, Marry, Love, there's a degree of optimism. It's a balanced book. I had Jeanette Winterson, the English novelist, writer, feminist on the show recently. She has a new book out, 12 Bites, which is built around her kind of love affair, I guess, intellectual love affair with Ada Lovelace and her role in the development of AI. What's the most optimistic take on in work, mate, marry, love about machines, smart machines, invented machines, post-human machines, perhaps, and human happiness that will enable us to work and mate and marry and love better than we have in the past? Yeah. So first of all, the, the core of my optimism comes from a deep belief and having looked at these issues in many different settings now that that people do want love it takes very many different forms you know if you go back to reproductive medicine it turns out from any evidence we can find that regardless how people finally get their children they love them exactly the same you know people want to love children they want to love partners i think that that wellspring of love doesn't go away it takes many different forms but i remain deeply optimistic about that and that's why and and i i am constantly sort of castigated for making this this argument, but but I do believe we will fall in love with robots. And, and I don't think that's gonna be a horrible thing. And the thought exercise I like to do in public is to ask people, you know, show of hands, how many of you went to bed last night? Or how many of you have a, a computer on your body right now? And it turns out, you know, kind of everybody has a computer on their physical body. How many people went to bed last night with that computer in the bed with them? It's a large number of people. We have relationships with our phones already. I'm not saying they're sexual relationships, they're not. But we have an emotional connection to our phones. And this is like Model T technology. How, you know, how does anyone feel if they lose their phone? You know, they feel like they lost their dog. 
maybe not they lost their partner, but there's, 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 a, there's an emotional connection. And I think as these machines get smarter and smarter, as they almost certainly will, our connections to them are going to deepen. And, and where I see it, people always think these things are going to happen first in the sexual realm, because that's sort of titillating to imagine, but, but I don't think that's where it's going to happen. I think where our emotional machines are going to come from is first with um, assistive, what are called assistive robots. And these are robots that help the elderly, help people who, you know, who need assistance and they don't have children or partners around to help them. So it's sort of like uh, Japan, essentially. No, exactly. Japan is leading the way here because they have to. And if you visit, as I have, some of these assistive robots, again, they're, they're clunky. They look like Disney animatronics. But the relationship that these elderly people have with the robots, those are not Disney animatronics. They Deborah, I can already hear some people being very upset with you. And I can hear one person in particular uh, down Mass Ave from where you teach at Harvard University, my old friend Sherry Turkle. She, uh, and, and I don't want to put words into Sherry's mouth, she can speak for herself, and she actually sent me a very nice email recently, uh, but I think she would strongly disagree with the idea of robots and AI replacing humans, especially when it comes to love. She was on the show recently talking about her new autobiography, The Empathy Diaries. Have you talked to Turkle about this? Is she a friend oh. of you? I haven't spoken to her directly. I'd be happy to have that conversation. And, and my guess is it, it actually wouldn't be as much a debate as, as, as a dialogue. Um, I'm certainly not talking about robots replacing human love. I'm, I'm talking about robots as expanding the circle of ways in which we can love. Um, I think of them more akin to pets than as, as human substitutes. But clearly the way people, and I'm not, a, I'm not a, a dog owner, so with apologies, you know, the way people treat their puppies now is fundamentally different than the way people treated dogs on the farm 100 years ago. Dogs have, you know, walked down, you know, Madison Avenue in New York, and you can't tell the babies from the puppies. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think if people can find room in their hearts to love a puppy, that's wonderful. And if they can find room in their hearts to love an animated seal, and it makes them feel better, I, I don't have a problem with that. Did you read... Um... Uh, Kazuo Ishiguro's Clara and the Sun. Uh, yes, but not recently enough that I'll remember it word for yeah, word. Yeah, because he presents a world in which these machines are more and more empathetic. And we need to introduce the E word. I uh, already talked about it with uh, Sherry. Sherry, I think, you know, her work has focused on how robots don't fulfill that. But that I don't want to, again, get stuck into that. We did a show last week on empathy with... Um, corporate exec, Natalie Petterhoof, about digital technology delivering more human empathy. Uh, empathy, the E word, comes up endlessly on, on this mm -hmm. show. Your new book is called Work, Mate, Marry, Love. You could probably add empathy. What is it about empathy that makes it such a popular word and such an important word in, I mean, you, you teach at the Harvard Business School, mm -hmm. so, certainly amongst business writers, but amongst uh, technologists and historians and, 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 and generally even novelists? Well, I think novels at some level have always been about empathy because they are about, most of them, human relations. It's a good question as to why it's become a more popular part of the discourse these days. And my, my guess would be in part because it's decreasing. 
that we're seeing less empathy. I mean, we're living in an angry moment. We have a very hard time politically understanding people who are different than us. Um, as my friend Norena Hertz has written in, in her book, The Lonely Century, loneliness is, is epidemic these days. Um, people are isolated. And I think much of that, to kind of drive the, the causality backwards, much of that has been driven by technology. Um, yeah, isn't that because of that little doggy in our pocket, the smartphone? No, I think it predates the doggy in, the, in our pocket. I think it, I think it goes back to farming technologies. Um, it was a piece in the Times this weekend about an old farm town in Nebraska that's completely been wiped out because the farms are gone. They were replaced by combines and industrial farming. And so many of the things that kept people in small village communities, those have been destroyed by technology. And it goes back to the railways and the com, you know, the, the, these are sort of industrial era technologies. But our old human connection points have disappeared. And we haven't really found many successful ways yet to replace that, that sense of community. And I think that that lack of community, that loss of human connectedness is part of what's manifesting itself in political divisions on both the left and the right. You know, people are looking for groundedness. They're looking for connection. Do I think robots can replace that? No, but I do think there are, you see that, that, that urge, that desire, and some of it, uh, will will uh, be replaced by, or at least will be augmented by, non-human forms of empathy. Will they be the same? No. Um, will they be something? Yes. Will we want that something? I I suspect so. Deborah, these great changes that you write about in your book and in your career, female rights, development of technology, they're always realized through politics. Uh, we did a show a few months ago with Antonia Fraser, the British historian, on a woman called Caroline Norton, uh, the case of the married woman. Um, Norton uh, realized that justice for women and ex-wives, uh, she, she was a pioneer in political terms. What are the, you know, and perhaps we'll end here because we began with Roe versus Wade, which is obviously highly political. Beyond the abortion debate, which is self-evident, it goes on and on, what are the other political battlegrounds where the issues that you're talking about, loneliness, love, mating, marriage, women's rights, which, which of these, could you identify these battlegrounds, new parties, new ideas, new movements, new thinkers? Yeah. Um, no new parties yet uh, of note, but I think certainly the, the, the debates that were let loose by the technologies of the digital era are, are now upon us. And I would start with social media. Um, social media has created many, many ramifications um, which have not been dealt with yet. The issue of privacy, uh, the issue of reputation, the technology ran so much faster than the regulation, particularly in the United States. It's a little bit uh, more under control in Europe, but we have to, and you're seeing these debates play out around Facebook and Twitter right now. Is that an issue of the left or the right? I don't know, um, but I think we're gonna have to come up with new ways of thinking about regulating, controlling, putting guardrails uh, on these technologies, just as we did with the industrial revolution. Um, I think we, what we're sort of, in, in, the, uh, in the midst of is sort of a search for a neo-Luddite party, not to 
sort of lionized the, the Luddites, but the Luddites were right in, in understanding how the technologies of the Industrial Revolution were going to change everything. We're in the midst of another moment like that right now. And the, the existing parties don't, there's, there's no, there's no uh, focal point. Yeah, so, maybe we need a, a sort of a, a, a postmodern Luddite movement. Yeah, well, we, we're, maybe we're, one that will reside on the internet, ironies of irony. Yeah. Well, it's good stuff. Thank you so much, uh, Deborah. We've covered a lot of ground. Work, mate, marry, love. How machines shape our human destiny is also a, a book that carries uh, a lot of ground. You've done a lot of other important books. Uh, Wonder Woman, uh, The Baby Business. Um, we shouldn't forget Ruling the Ways from the Compass to the Internet, A History of Business and Politics along the technological frontier. Uh, what else are you reading these days, Deborah? Anything interesting? Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm reading kind of all over the map. Um, one of the things I, I've, I've taken to reading Russian literature, oh, uh, these darker moments, which uh, my students have pointed out to me is deeply pessimistic. But I actually found reading War and Peace and Dr. Zhivago actually provides some purchase on this moment we're living through right now, because we're clearly living it in a moment when history is moving very quickly. They were as well. And, and sort of seeing how people felt the need to ground their relationships in the deeply personal at a time when history seemed and was out of their control, I find oddly comforting. And then I also went back- I, I would have thought that uh, Tolstoy is in, in a way a more important voice than Pasternak in that sense. Much, much more, much more important. But Pasternak is just a gorgeous read, just an, mm. an absolutely beautiful read. Um, and then I went back, this is very different. Uh, recently reread um, John Kenneth Galbraith's book, The New Industrial State. Brilliant book. And he saw a lot of this coming. He understood how industrial technologies were going to change not only companies, but, but governments. And that they were going to change the, the you know the underlying dynamics of of, uh, of our political system, and then I've been trying to read because uh, I, I I tend left. I've been trying to read some political philosophy on the right, and and I've been I've been reading Patrick Denis in this past week. Mm, I yeah, I want to get him. He I was talking to him about getting him on the show. Yeah, that's very, I don't agree with him, but but I agree with with much of what he says about um, how our our cultures are are. are old you know communities have been disrupted by technology um and immigration and then finally i've gone back and read some marx and engels which i'm actually teaching in my course this year if you want to understand how technological change affects society marx got it as well as anybody else who's ever written on it 